Hello, everybody. We are brought to you today by Routine. When you sleep, you lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, mainly from expelling vapors and sweating. What do you do first thing in the morning? Well, most people wake up, don't drink water, and they go straight for the caffeine. They drink coffee. And by doing so, you actually dehydrate yourself even more. So Morning Routine is a product that contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, no sugar. They come in these little single-serve packets, and they are part of every single morning for me. When I wake up, the first thing I do is grab my shaker bottle, pour one of these little single-serve packets in, shake it up, and drink it. Uh, genuinely, the days I use Morning Routine versus the days I don't, the days I do, I truthfully, truthfully, truthfully feel hydrated. Uh, I feel like my brain is just working in a way that it doesn't on days that I don't start my day off with one of these. Routine, trusted ingredients, made convenient. If you go to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first order. Again, this is just a daily morning supplement that I take. Um, and a little hack for everyone listening too, I take these first thing in the morning. Sometimes when I feel just dehydrated or maybe if you decide to have an alcoholic beverage, they're also great in my opinion after having a, if you have a drink, um, having one of these afterwards before you go to bed to rehydrate, just any part of your day, um, you can plug one of these in uh, just to rehydrate yourself and get going. And like I said, go to yourroutine.com and use code ShaneWhite30 at checkout for 30% off your first order. Today, we're also brought to you by NeuroRoast. Today's episode is brought to you by NeuroRoast, a company that's dedicated to helping you optimize your brain function and overall well-being. NeuroRoast's flagship product is their premium mushroom coffee, which is made with an organic single-origin coffee and their signature blend of five different functional mushrooms, including cordyceps, lion's mane, reishi, turkey tail, and chaga. Mushroom coffee is a new and exciting way to supercharge your day. Unlike regular coffee, which can cause jitters and crashes, mushroom coffee provides a more balanced and sustained energy boost, allowing you to stay focused and productive throughout the day. And with NeuroRoast ground and instant coffee options, you can enjoy the benefits of mushroom coffee wherever and whenever you need it. And here's some great news for my listeners today. NeuroRoast is offering an exclusive just discount just for you. If you use the code ShaneWhite during checkout at NeuroRoast.com, dot com that's n-e-u-r-o-a-s-t dot com you'll get 30 percent off your order uh, whether you choose ground or instant coffee both will work so again that's shane white at at checkout for 30 percent off your purchase so if you're looking for a natural and delicious way to boost your focus memory and overall cognitive function give neurorose mushroom coffee a try with their commitment to quality and sustainability, you can trust that you're getting the best possible coffee for your brain and your body. Uh, and one last time, use that code Shane White at checkout to get 30%. Um, that is the prompt they gave me. Love the guys at NeuroRoast. Genuinely, folks, uh, from me to you, th their coffee is delicious. It does honestly have a different sort of caffeination way of it. The best way to describe it is it, it doesn't give you the jitters or the crash. Um, I love their stuff. It's the I get the flavored mushroom coffee, ground coffee. Um, to be honest, it's one of my favorite afternoon coffee products. 
Uh, if I'm going to have a cup of coffee for some reason in the afternoon, whether it's a long, busy day, whatever it may be, um, I love taking their stuff because it really doesn't give you this like jittery, super elevated, caffeinated feeling, but you feel like you have energy and you don't have the crash later. So genuinely do love NeuroRoast. Again, their website is N-E-U-R-O-A-S-T dot com and the code is shameless. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. The episode is up after this. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Shane White Show. I'm pumped today. I didn't tell you guys this before we hit record, but I've only had one other recording with both founders at the same time. So this is exciting. It's three of us on the podcast today. So Seth and Steven, welcome to the show, the founders of Masa Chips. Uh, Welcome and thanks for taking the time. Cool. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, for folks listening who don't know you guys and don't know what Masa Chips is or the brand is, would you guys mind both just introducing yourselves real quickly and, and giving a quick intro to what the brand is? Sure. So I'm Steven, also known as Really Tan Man on certain social media platforms on the internet. Um, Masa Chips are tortilla chips that are made with the perfect set of ingredients that, of course, exclude seed oils. But it's not just that. They are the tortilla chip perfected. If you think about the the dozens of different brands of snacks in the in the grocery aisle or in the in the snack aisle, you know, you'd think, how can you have a new tortilla chip? It's all been done. It hasn't been. Everything is just equally the same like garbage to your ingredients. And so we've gone back from, you know, first principles and, and fixed every single possible thing. Um, which is only there's only three ingredients, but we fixed every single possible one and created the perfect tortilla chip. And that's what we sell. And my name's Seth. I handle the finance side for the most part at Masa Chips. My background, I was working in private equity doing impact investing. And so my kind of role before this was trying to figure out how to make the world better through uh, investing. And basically felt like the investor side down funnel where you're working on more mature companies doesn't have the same impact, right? You're an owner instead of someone else, but the company is kind of there either way. Sure. And so founder, I get to play or support um, making things become that work. And I think getting to bring things into the world that makes the world better is uh, just a job to rather Love it. Yeah, no, appreciate the background for both you guys. For everyone listening to, um, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can kind of directly go to their website and social media and all that fun stuff. For anyone watching, you can see besides, behind Seth, he's got a really good uh, backdrop of the brand. It's funny, guys, and, and, and you, you probably laugh, but um, I do, you know, I'm a big fan of branding and, and you guys stood out to me really early on as I was, as I, you know, started seeing you guys pop up around the internet. Um, for everyone listening, it, the, the packaging is vertically striped, uh, definitely catches your eye, no matter if it's on retail or even I think on social, uh, it just pops really, really well. Um, would love to understand even from the beginning, what, where did the branding come from? Where did you guys, where did you guys come up with the concept and, and would love to understand just like the overall brand design, like how you guys came up with that? Yeah. So, I think a little bit earlier and maybe we can give the full story, Stephen. Sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're going way back. Let's go um, to the beginning. That's, this podcast is all about zero to one. Yeah. It is so, like a full, yeah. So the beginning is around uh, way back. It's like 10 years ago when I was basically struggling with my health. Uh, I just finished my freshman year of college. I was eating at the dining hall and it was just like not feeling good. I got sick so many times that year. Um, and it was like decent di- food by dining hall standards, but like, there's just like something wrong with it. And I didn't know anything about health or nutrition at the time. Uh, but I was about to discover quite a lot. And so it just so happened that I was studying abroad in Belgium. Uh, hmm. I was doing an internship at a neuroscience lab the following summer and in Europe, 
Um, there are no dining halls in the dorms, and there is no mom to cook for me. I was 19 at the time, and so I had to learn to cook for myself. Um, and being a naturally curious person, I ended up like, I don't know, just Googling how to feed yourself as a human, and then stumbled into this whole world of diets. And I think the paleo diet was popular at the time. So I started learning about this and was like, okay, cool, I can give this a shot. And within about two weeks of doing that, I noticed that I could breathe through my nose for like the first time ever, right? Like congestion is a, one of the health mm-hmm. problems that I always suffered with as a kid. And so that was eye-opening to me because it made me realize that like my physical circumstances are not fixed, right? Like you can, you know, you're the master of your own destiny, so to speak. And so that was pretty cool because then I'm like, well, if I can fix my congestion, what else can I fix? And that sort of set me off the, the the deep end into the world of health and nutrition and fitness and wellness and the biohacking and all that stuff. So over the next so many years when I went back to college and even after when I was working as a software engineer at Facebook after I graduated, I just spent all my spare time learning about as much as I could about all this, reading all the books, watching all the YouTube videos, reading all the studies, experimenting on myself, fermenting kombucha in my college dorm room, oh, like wow. making making sourdough bread before it was cool in 2018, like kneading dough at like 1 a.m. So that like when I woke <laughs> up the next morning on like Sunday, I could actually like bake bread. Um, so really getting into all that stuff. And it wasn't until 2021 uh, in the summer when I was basically bored at my software job because, you know, in big tech, at least back then, you only worked like 10 hours a week. Um so I was basically just bored and decided I would start a TikTok, like sharing all the stuff that I had learned. Um, and that went really well. I, I got 80,000 followers in 80 days of doing that. Oh, wow. Doing that. And that taught me that like, hey, you know, I can actually like speak to people in a way that they want to listen to. Well, that's cool. And talk about the stuff that I'm passionate about. But the other thing that I learned from it is that knowledge about health is not really enough to uh, fix anything, right? Everyone's sick. Everyone's obese. Everyone's like got skin problems. Everyone's got hormone problems. We know this, but knowing about it is not going to fix anything because what was happening at the time is I would just keep getting comments from people or like DMs saying like, Hey, cool. That's great. But like, how do I actually do that? Right. I'm not like you. I can't spend 30, I can't spend an hour once a week driving to some farm outside the city. I can't like, go and cook all my meals three times a day like how do i just be healthy without all this bs and that's like not an easy problem to solve because all the food that's convenient is basically poison sure so that was that was like a a, the problem i had at the time um and then serendipitously i happened to be in new year's with seth and a few other college friends uh in miami last year and that's when january 1st 2022 uh my background very different from Stevens. Um, you know, not been very careful what would have put in my body. Eat kind of like a pig on occasion. And um, January first, twenty twenty two. Uh, like a lot of people in the world, very hungover, sitting with a bag of Tostitos, just trying to eat the pain away. Sure. And, okay. Uh, yeah. So Stephen and I are are at Airbnb with a few other friends, and he comes downstairs to the living room where I'm just stuffing my face, trying to you know, get the hangover to stop, and he's just making fun of me as you know as you do. And we're each other back and forth, and we're talking about carbs and fat, and how you know food is food, carbs and fat are fine, but you know tostitos aren't really food. And get we get into a conversation about uh, seed oils, which at the time I had never heard of. Vegetable oils were probably good for you because vegetables are good for you, or something. You know, it wasn't really a thing on my mind. Um, and uh, I'm working in private equity at the time, working you know eighty or hundred hours a week. Definitely 
cooking, let alone grocery shopping is not on my, my schedule. Um, and so I'm one of the, exactly those people telling Stephen, like, you're probably right. I probably shouldn't be eating all this junk and also I don't have time to care. So make it easy or fuck off. Sure. Yeah. This yeah. is like the, the exact problem <laughs> that I was getting for my audience was like, Hey, like that's all well and good, but like, a, it's a lot of work and a lot of time that I don't have. And B, you also don't enjoy your life because, you know, I just eat whatever I want. It's much easier that way. And it's like my rebuttal to this, um, which was not always the case. I used to sort of be like, well, screw you. I'd rather be healthy. Um, my rebuttal to this now, uh, as I learned over the years, is that like, you know, being healthy is much more enjoyable because the food you get to eat is like literally better, right? On a daily basis, it's I real. get to eat. Yeah grass-fed pasture-raised beef and grass-fed butter and raw milk ice cream that my wife makes from scratch. Uh, I just got married, by the way, so that's a weird statement yeah, for me. Yeah, congratulations. But um, Love it. thank you. Um, <laughs> I get to, you get to eat like literally caviar and like sourdough bread and honey and fresh fruit that's like actually like has flavor to it because it's not grown with a bunch of fertilizers. So um, my my food is very enjoyable, but however, it's not convenient, and so I think that was the that was the real issue. Because I, when we were talking about the Tostitos, I was getting into this whole like the perfect tortilla chip, right? Like, no, tortilla chips could be so good, right? You just make them with X, Y, and Z. It's not that you have to give this delicious food up; you could just make them right. Um, but that thing didn't exist, and so Seth basically challenged me to go make it. Uh, which, oh, okay. So you were was... basically like, I could just make my own. That's way better. Yeah, this this also keep in mind. I mean, he's working at Facebook. I'm working finance. This was not like we're out to make a business. This was. I mean, I can totally yeah. see you guys on New Year's Eve just having this debate. Like, yeah, go yeah. go do it. Go do it. Go Steve. do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but we did. Um, so we went back and we're kind of excited by the idea because both of us had been interested in starting a business, you know, for independently, you know, for for very for quite a few years. Um, we got in touch with a food startup consultant who hmm. basically told us that we just couldn't do it um, because the perfect tortilla chip, of, of course, is organic corn and grass-fed tallow and salt. Grass-fed tallow being like the rendered fat from cows that is an animal product and not like widely used in America in the American food system today. It used to be, of course, but we can get into that. Um, and so this guy was more or less said that if you want to do this, you just have to, you have to change the ingredients. You got to use coconut oil or avocado oil or something. And I'm like, well, obviously, I'm here to make the perfect tortilla chip. I'm not going to go do that. Um, yeah, right. So, so we had to go. We had to. We had. I had to literally roll my sleeves up and literally make it myself. Um, I bought a turkey fryer from Costco. I bought a grass of bo a box of grass fed tallow and some organic corn tortillas from some local shop. Uh, chopped them up. Uh, got the propane tank. Fired up the fryer last Easter in my parents' backyard um, I'm in the deck while everyone's oh, like wow. eating their normal food. I'm like out here trying not to burn the house down. Like, what's Steven um, doing again? Yeah, no, no one's batting an eye, of course. You know, business as usual over over here. Um, but so, so I made them and I, I really liked them. And then I fed them to my family and they really liked them. And so they're a bit less extreme than I am when it comes to health. So the fact that they enjoyed this thing as much as I did is like, that's a really good, that's a really good sign because like sure, yeah. the Holy grail and health food, of course, is something that's healthy, but also tastes good. Um, people in the modern American mind, like they don't understand that they, they understand a fundamental distinction between health foods and delicious foods. And like, you can't have both just like, that's how people approach cuisine. Um, so to actually like genuinely have both is like, what's so revolutionary about it. Um, so that was, that was it. I was like, okay, we have something special here. 
the only challenge was that we were going to have to make it by hand. And so obviously the costs involved with making something by hand are much higher. So we need to be able to charge more money um, to like fund our ability to produce this. And then that's like where the branding and that's where your original question comes in. That's, that's where branding comes in. So, so there's a general question on distribution, right? Like you can have the best mousetrap in the world, but if you can't market it right between packaging and branding, whatever, no one finds out about it or it costs you so much for anyone to find out about it that you'll, you'll never have a business. And so, right. um, I had a buddy I'd worked with on a couple of other projects I'd been in. Um, he was just like a design genius and artist in Scotland. And we basically had a half hour call with him and said, you know, here's our persona. It's beautiful people who are comfortable on the beach, maybe a wooden yacht in the Mediterranean, just enjoying life. Um, think Positano, I'm all coming folks. together. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. We just want our bag, our crunch, our chip, everything about that experience to just make you feel like you're there. And I, I, was, I think it was like a literally 30 minute call with this guy and he came back with this bag design and we're like, that's Masa. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and so he, he, a genius and took what we really wanted is this like fulsome experience where you have the health, you have the taste, you have the kind of psychological element of being where you want to be, um, all tied together with the, the brand the packaging and, and the visual. And that's how we, um, how we got Masa. And, and I'm guessing now that this is all coming to, to my mind. Is this like an umbrella? Is it kind of like those, or what, what am I thinking of? I, yeah. when you, yes, you're talking yes, you talking about, about the umbreller's, the umbreller's yeah, beach like, towels in Positano. Yes, the beach towels. It's yes, all like yes. now it's that's like literally what head. it is. That's, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I love it. That that yeah. resonated as soon as you start talking about. it. I'm like, aha. That's exactly yeah. like it's somewhere deep in my brain. I can't pull it out, but I know exactly what I'm thinking. And there, there's a lot of like sort of subliminal like signaling that's going on there too, because people uh, the seed oil discourse, such as it is, talks a lot about tanning. That's like my name mm. being on social media being really tan man part of that is like <laughs> seed oils are bad the sunlight is good but also seed oils make the sunlight bad for you so like in order to tan correctly you need to not eat seed oils um oh. so there's that element of this too it's like the 1950s mediterranean leisure wearing linen on a beach you know in the mediterranean so like there's there's that aspect so when you when you see masa and you get the vibe like that food um, not specifically, but also generally, like that food is enabling you to live in this way. Um, and so that's why it all sort of comes together. Like you, you don't imagine the typical Doritos customer to be the type of person who's in the place where Masa is, right? Yes. Like yeah. that's not, that's not the same person. The Masa person is like wearing linen, is fit, is tan, is, you know, leisurely strolling around the beach, getting an espresso and whatever. From a customer experience perspective, what we want to deliver to people is something closer to like a luxury handbag or even a Starbucks coffee where um, you feel good walking around with it. Like if you mm -hmm. think about it, if you ever, you know, drunk, sober, whatever, you get a bag of Cheetos or Doritos at a convenience store, you probably don't want your, any of your friends like seeing you. Or it's not the, the biggest in the world, but like it's a little shameful, right? Like yeah, it's not. Gross. Yeah. You're not treating your body well. Like you feel kind of bad about it. Um, what we want our customers to get with every bag of masa is they kind of want to be seen, right? If it feels good. You're treating your body well. The bag is beautiful. You just feel good walking around with it. And so um, it's really flipping that the whole concept of what snacking looks like for, for people. Well, I, I love think that. No, yeah. it, it addresses a significant cultural issue we have uh, today around food, which goes back to what I was saying before about how healthy food must taste bad. Like sure. people, the type of people who are interested in health and fitness, which is not everyone, but it's a large number of people. 
there's like a weird sort of psychological complex they have where they're guilty about food all the time because they've been, it's been internalized to them from health class and the doctor and, you know, the gym and social media and whatever that like, if it tastes good, it's indulgent and therefore it's bad for you. Every time they eat something they enjoy, like that's tempered by them also feeling bad and guilty and about it. And maybe their friends are shaming them for like eating a bunch of snacks or being a fat ass or whatever. So food is, should not be like that. Food is our sustenance. Food is how we survive. Like an entire country walking around with a psychological complex of like guilt induced food is bad when humans need to eat like two or three times a day to survive. So the broader idea that we're trying to, to get at is reconditioning people to actually feel good when they eat, which they should when they eat the right things. Um, it tastes good. It's good for you. And I think the whole brand experience enables them to psychologically feel good about it as well. And that's probably, that's, that's where the actual like cultural change will happen because of this. I think that's also where the brand power lies. Another way to think about this is bringing American food culture from the English model to the French model, mm. where the English eat not so well, and they don't tend to feel so good about it. Uh, whereas the French eat really decadent, rich foods and tend to be pretty attractive, right? Like very fit and, and healthy. And it's not because they're eating kale and chia seeds all the time, but they, they eat real foods that have real fats and real proteins and, and walk a lot, they move a lot. Um, and so they eat really high quality whole foods. And I think part of what the Masa and Ancient Crunch broader vision, which we can talk about as well, is, is making it easy for Americans to shift their pantry and their, their diet towards that focus where you eat, you're, you love your food, you enjoy eating as an experience, and, and you feel great about it both during the meal and after. Love that. No, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, now, yeah, now I'm getting like French and I'm also getting like Italian coast vibes. It totally, totally makes so much yeah. sense now. So yeah. I would love to go back to, because one of the things on this show I love to really get into the root of is, I mean, we, we hear about Steven doing this at his parents' house on Easter, like really just trying to hand make it himself. Seth's over here egging him on a few months before that <laughs> to go try it out. All of that is like, that is, that happens. Like you hear about people who go through that same process. The part that I feel that most people never make the leap on is somewhere in between there where you guys challenge each other. Steven's over here messing with the product. How did you guys go from, okay, we have this cool concept. We have this belief system of what we can bring to the market. How did you go from that to actually creating the product? And then ultimately, like, what made you guys jump and do this full time? It sounds like you both had, you know, blooming careers as, as young guys doing really well. Obviously, it's a big jump to then say, hey, I'm going to go sell better for you tortilla chips. I mean, I think the second question is easier to answer, so we'll do that first. Um, I think both of us were like, all right, well, we're, we're going to do this once we saw the upside in it, like tangibly. So we were selling Masa for about like eight weeks or four weeks before I quit my job at Facebook. For Seth, it took a little longer, which makes sense. Finance skepticism. It's, uh, it's all. It's I'm, with, all... I'm with Seth. In my business, my, I am the Seth for sure. I was yeah, I'm no, the finance guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think you need both, same... though. You need both. Yeah. No, but in the same way, it's like once the upside is like apparent and it's more worthwhile than doing whatever you're currently doing, then it just makes sense. Sure. The other thing, um, there's an audio clip. Do you know those Instagram reels on mm -hmm. Instagram? That's like TikTok and whatever. Sure. It's, yeah. They're copycat for sure. But, I mean, the, the bigger issue on that is t I didn't want TikTok because I don't want reels because they you watch them way too much. I watch them way too much and now they're on Instagram and issue but there, yeah. there's one um that stuck with me which was i think a joe rogan audio overlaid on like a minecraft visual okay um, where it's basically saying like your life is a story you're the hero what would the hero do I'm like go do that 
And I Love think that. Yeah. When, when God gives you the chance to go be the hero and like build a business that changes something real for hundreds of thousands of millions, maybe tens of millions of people versus being like an Excel jockey, that feels like an easy call, right? And so there, there's yeah. something like romantic and YOLO about getting the chance to jump, right? Like you're going to die eventually and life is short and it's full of experiences. And if you choose for those experiences to be cool and interesting with people you like, you're gonna have an awesome time and we choose for life to be you know blooming careers but not really anything you're inspired by it's, it's just a tough tough life to live yeah i, yeah, I love that golden, golden handcuffs man yeah <laughs> well especially i mean just to be transparent with you guys you know i've had a lot of people on here that have started businesses but working at facebook we're working in private equity like Arguably, those are some pretty safe career paths that you know you can make some pretty good money, right? It's not like you guys were, uh, you know, I don't know, working for somewhere where most yeah. people in those career paths don't make the jump you guys made. So kudos to both of you. I mean, obviously, it's a big leap. I think, yeah, going back to the first question you asked, I think that actually is part of it. Because, like, if I, if both of us were working in private equity, I don't think this would have happened. But because mm. I worked at Facebook, which is basically a part-time job, um, <laughs> I I had the spare. Hopefully time. Zuck hears this and he's just like, God Hopefully. damn it. <laughs> Zuck has been uh an unwilling or un, un unknown angel investor, an unwitting okay. angel investor this entire time. Oh yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. That's um, amazing. The the first the first major investor in my life. Um anyway. But but yeah, so if I didn't have the the part time job there. Um, I don't think this would have really gotten off the ground to answer your first question. Like there's a, a bit of sure. like, oh, I need to like actually think about and have the creative energy to go and do this and order my, go and pick up my turkey fryer and think to even do that and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just had the time to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I certainly had like the will and passion about it. I, I've been going nuts about health foods for 10 years, as I mentioned. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I mean, like there's probably like 10 different, masas that weren't masa like sure. recipes or like foods yeah. that i've invented or started making or learn how to make myself before this none of them are good businesses so that's why they don't exist but you know this is this is what i do so it wasn't it wasn't that much of a leap for me to go and actually like make this happen it, that's yeah no that's a that's a great answer and and what's interesting from already hearing from you guys it seems like the zero to one of jumping making the product and selling it happened really quick and again I'm just a, a dumb consumer that, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not creating a product today, but I, I feel like all of a sudden it was just, you guys were fucking everywhere. Like you're, you're like, I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I, and I'm not blowing smoke. It was and maybe it's cause I follow a lot of like male fitness influencers on mm -hmm. Instagram and you guys have been crushing it. And I've had Eric on here and I've been trying to get Brian Maz on here. So if he's listening or you want to give him a little, yeah, be like, can you just respond to my Instagram? I'd love to get you on. Um, I've, there's all these guys that I follow. That I'm like, oh, they have masa now. They've got masa now. So it was one of those things that, again, I would love to know and, and share with the audience um, if that was part of the strategy from the beginning. But I just transparently against brands that I know and work with and, and talk to in the space, you guys did a really good job early on of just getting the product in the hands of people who live the same lifestyle that you guys are just talking about. So I, I think a lot of that is about having a product that people want to have and want to promote. I think, um, and not, not to name anybody or, or to shame anyone, but there are products that are a harder natural fit for a lot of influencers. And so, um, you know, they'll get paid, they'll promote it and things and they become salespeople, but it's not something they're excited about. And it kind of sure. comes in their post frequency, the energy behind the post, all that kind of stuff. 
I think when you, frankly, like hit product market fit, just like it's a delicious chip that makes you feel good. People love chips. People love pretty things. It's beautiful, right? Um, and you you are like a naturally desirable thing for people that where they'd be a natural consumer without you reaching out. Mm -hmm. uh, you just end up getting a lot more traction. And so we've built um, a network of I think over 300 people now who help uh, just like share posts, we send them some free product, seeding, all that kind of stuff. And so that's been really like, successful for us. I think the anger for that, in addition to the product, is that Steven himself is an influencer. And so through really tan man, there's a lot of credibility that we've had as a platform to say, you know, this is really tan man's product. His reputation is staked on this. It's working. People like it. Right. right? And it's not, you know, here's a, another thing in a bottle and, and hope that you, you, you feel good about it. Yeah, it was a lot easier initially to get influencers on board because I just had like friends or acquaintances just from being having like 40,000 Twitter followers or whatever. You just like, you just DM each other. And so right, yeah. it, it would have been a lot harder for an anonymous brand to all of a sudden get the attention of people who are influential. So we had, um, it's not as if, you know, I'm the primary influencer or anything or like that's necessary, uh, but that was a good, uh, a good bit of fuel for the fire initially. And that was influencers for sure were our initial go to market strategy. We didn't have a single Facebook ad. We started in July last year um, and we didn't have a single like meaningful Facebook ad until like January. Um, oh, good for you guys. Wow. So, so it's been about a year of, of selling the product and being out yeah, in the market. Yeah, it's been about a year. And yeah. the first, whatever that is, four months were um, influencers. And we didn't even have an email guy until someone <laughs> told me that like, hey, you should have emails as a D2C business. And I was like, really? I don't open emails. So why would I have emails? Um, and then we yeah. had an email guy. Oh, <laughs> that great. Yeah, that's funny. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. We have a, um, our, our subscription business. We have uh, a funnel ultimately for DC customers where um, get a sample pack, try it out. It's cheap. I'm 20 bucks. If you like it, buy some more. If you really like it, get subscription, save money. Mm -hmm. And um, this was Steven's idea. I'd never personally subscribed to food before. And so okay. yeah. again, it's like, why would people, you know, um, but if you really like something and there's only way to get it and you save money, it, it's, it's a great deal for you. And so um, I think a lot of the journey for both of us has been realizing we are not the universe and there are lots of people who are not like us. And if it's working for someone else, give it a try and maybe it'll work for you. And if not, that's okay too, right? But just like tinkering, iterating with the things that wouldn't work for you as a customer, but might work for your customer base is, is great. That's, that's a really good one. When I was at RX Bar, super quick story. Uh, we had, I'm going to butcher his last name, uh, Steve Cahill, the CEO of Kellogg's came in after we got acquired and, yeah. gave a, and came and gave a talk. And uh, I'll never forget, someone on my team asked, just basically like, you know, we lived in our little RX bar bubble. We were blowing up. We were growing quickly. And we basically said like, you know, are we all the innovation that Kellogg has? Like it was, it was kind of the question because we were growing really fast and we're like, Kellogg's dying, right? Like everything they sell is dying. And I'll never forget his response. He laughed, first of all. And he goes, you, you're here in Chicago. Like, yes, everyone, we're around you. Everyone's trying to eat healthy. Everyone's trying to eat clean. He's like, Go park your ass in the middle of Nebraska at a Walmart and just sit there for an hour and see what people are walking out of the store with. It's not our bars. Yeah. And it was really eye-opening for me because I'm like, I probably live in that little world where I'm like, better for you, try and eat healthy, try and eat clean. But that doesn't go to, to say that like that's not a huge market. It obviously is. But it does go to say that like whatever your little niche is, sometimes you can learn a lot from brands who are maybe aren't in your niche. Um, just because it's not what you're in, uh, there's probably lots of things you can take away from it. I mean, it's really cool though. There's people out there like buying foods with seed oil specifically because they think they're good. 
like you know there's literally sure, yeah. there's everything out there <laughs> right i mean do you guys feel like you've really because i'll be honest i think you guys have done such a good job of pinning the no seed oil as like a big big piece of the branding and i know personally that's just becoming things i hear more about on podcasts and i hear more about just in general the the circles i run around in um do you feel like that's been something that's just been great timing for you guys because it does seem like that's yes. getting a lot of steam so yes. phenomenal. Um, if you look at Google Trends, which I think is a super powerful tool, we are seed oils as a search term are one percent of keto, but skyrocketing. So it's like absolutely an hockey moment. So I think from a cultural tailwind perspective, like we are at the beginning of a massive, massive wave, which hopefully will stay around because seed oils, unlike keto, which is painful where you don't get to enjoy what you like. Right. Cutting out canola oil makes your life better. And so <laughs> you know, it's like a, a persistent mega trend, which will be nice. Um, but yeah, I think from a timing perspective, we, we basically nailed perfectly the, the beginning of the next big thing for sure. I mean, that timing is so much, uh, it's so important, right? Like I know you guys hit on paleo. That's, I always pin that back when RX really got their hockey stick moment. It was mm-hmm. launching it when the paleo movement became a huge thing. Yeah. Um, timing's huge. So for you guys, you launch on D to C where else did you guys launch, uh, in the first year? So we're in retail and select locations. We're in uh, Southern California. It's been great for us. And I think when you think about the branding and the product and the value prop, it's somehow, like LA is just exactly the right place. So we are the number one tortilla chip in Erewhon. I think we're number two in all of snacks minus like a gluten-free cookie or something. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so Erewhon's been like a perfect fit for us. Um, we launched in Bristol Farms recently. We're in maybe a hundred or so independents around the country. Um, and then we are getting more supply online later this year, which would enable a lot more retail rollout, but, um, that's kind of where we are on retail and then we're available on Amazon, but, um, we've had trouble keeping them stocked, honestly. Okay. Yeah. Good um, problem to have. Those are our channels. Yeah. Very good. And then how big is the team? You guys, been, you haven't been around very long, but how many people are behind just the two so of you? It's about 15, most of whom okay. are in manufacturing. Um, we have three people who help us on like the laptop side of things. Um, and then we have about a dozen guys in, we have an in-house production facility. So as Steven mentioned, nice. we uh, couldn't find a co-man originally because it's animal fat, it's saturated fat, it's um, all these kinds of issues that um, commands often don't want to deal with. And so we, for the last year, basically worked to find one. We got mm. one yes in Austin at the uh, Tortilla Conference, which is apparently a thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You guys must have been, I mean, that was very disruptive probably for you guys to show up though. I'm running around with 20 bags of masa in like a leather satchel, basically giving them out to people <laughs> while they're talking about like moisture content and fiber. I don't know. Stuff beyond me. Right. But, um, yeah, very, very weird at the conference, a lot of fun. And one guy, he basically just saw that we were marketing a new product, bring something new, something different to what is like a great, but ultimately like relatively legacy industry. Um, and he had to take me out for dinner. We got, you know, food and drinks, whatever, and headed off. And then, um, I was like, maybe a month later, Steve and I flew out to Indianapolis to meet him. And now we have, um, a lease in place. We have machines coming in and we should actually have a command set up by November 1st or so. Oh, wow. That's, you said Indianapolis? Indianapolis. Yeah. That's, that's where I'm from. So that's funny. Oh. <laughs> I very rarely hear of food brands coming out of Indianapolis. That's odd. That's really cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, it shows the difficulty of like co-manufacturing this product is like the one that the only one we found is one that yeah. is just going to make the facility for us. Like it's, oh. it's not like it exists already. Yeah. He makes tortillas, but like he can't like use the same equipment or whatever. So we're like, 
in a completely separate space with completely separate equipment. He's just like standing it up for us. Like there's no commands for this. Wow. Thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So we, we had 200 nodes. Um, we have more products to come after Masa has moved into a command and we can use our current facility for, for the potato chips. But um, yeah, the command challenge for animal fat fried foods is honestly pretty shocking. It's yeah. Like, it's yeah. amazing when they're, you, you think like simpler ingredients, simpler process, it's harder to get help to build them, to make those. Right. Isn't that, it seems so counterintuitive. Yeah. Well, people yeah, like want... I'm, I'm sitting here, we're sitting here trying to make tortilla chips as if like the exact same way that they were made in the 1950s and no one can do it. It's like yeah. you, you hear about those people, like on Twitter, for example, people talk about these threads where like they'll show some marble carved like cathedral or something in Europe. And then they'll say, oh, my friend's dad works at like a granite company. And we asked him if he could make that. And he's like, no one alive today could make that. And it's like <laughs> people are doing this when like indoor plumbing wasn't a thing. Uh, and now they can't do it anymore. It's a similar kind of concept. People were making tallow, animal fat fried snacks for probably a good seven decades uh, in the U.S. before it stopped being a thing. And now no one can do it anymore. Wild. Yeah, it seems so backwards. And so... Yeah. And Seth, you, you hit on one of my next questions was, you know, you guys, obviously masa chips are the first thing you guys bring to market. Yeah. If you just interact with the brand on the website or social, you'll see that you guys also have ancient crunch. Is there a, it must be a, a broader play of a, a variety of products that fall into the same type of uh, landscape. Yeah. So our next product is bandy crisps, which is a potato chip. Um, it's going to have a similar ethos. So life is good. Things are beautiful. You're beautiful. You're healthy. Animal fat fried, either duck fat or, or beef tallow or skull. Oh, now. nice. Okay. Um, but similar fundamental ethos just for a potato chip. Um, and the, the broader business concept uh, for what, I, what we're kind of thinking is like phase one is Ancient Crunch, which is the umbrella corporation, which like launches and scales out better for you snacks with animal fats as their, their core fat. Um, so that'll be uh, masa, it'll be bandy crisps, which is potato chip, it'll be cheese crackers, cookies, granola, whatever kind of stuff that we have fun making. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the really broad vision, if we're here for 10, 15, 20 years, is something that looks more like what we call ancient life, where you end up with um, all of your food fixed, all of your clothing fixed, all of your cosmetics and bathroom stuff fixed, right? It's just kind of returning to things that don't poison you. That's oh, general love it. Yeah. You know, kind of clean out your pantry first, then go through your bathroom, go through your wardrobe, what have you. And um, that, that's like the very long-term macro view. But the, you know, three to seven-year story is, is Ancient Crunch, which is get your pantry fixed. Wow. Oh, that's really, really cool. Dropping some some big macro plans here on the <laughs> podcast. This is cool. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean... So what does the timeline look like for, for the other product? Like as far as the pantry, is that, is Masa going to be a focus for, you know, a few years and then you bring something else not, to market or you not, guys? Not anything we can explicitly commit to at the moment. Sure. Yeah. It's a question of getting the Coman stood up so that we can get the current facility going with the new product. Um, I think the rough cadence is probably one new product a year, roughly. Um, okay, love it. Real fast, real slower, but um, we basically want to scale a, a product in our own facility where we can control quality, make sure we're really proud of what we're putting out, and then when we have enough kind of proven demand and customers are really happy, move it to a command and get the next thing running. Um, but it's it is a lot of like tight quality control and getting that initial customer base built up before we do that. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. And and for you guys to even sorry, one more question to back out because I find it so interesting. You guys have moved so fast in a short amount of time. I have so many exciting questions because it's it's honestly really cool what you guys have done in such a short window. Um, when you guys made the leap, it sounds like you guys jumped in just the two of you. Um, what's your guys' perspective? And would love to hear what you guys did at Masa and with Ancient Crunch as a whole around just standing up a business. So to give context, a lot of people listening to this fall into that camp of they have an idea, they just haven't taken the leap yet. So did you guys, did you self-fund this to get it started? Did you guys go out and raise capital immediately? Like what was your guys' thoughts on like getting the business off the ground? So initially self-funded, um, we each put in about 100K. Um, so enough capital to like take bets and play with it. Um, I think the advice I would give is if you can find a bet that you can take as an entrepreneur that costs you a non-life-changing amount of money, and it gives you a real probability at a life-changing outcome, go do that, right? Like, I think people are so afraid of failure and losing five or 10 grand that they miss out on shots on goal to have a totally different life. And in my opinion, I think most people's opinion, a much cooler, much more fun life. Um, I think if you have a reasonably thought out path to burn five or 10 grand for a real shot on like changing your life, that is almost always a good call. Um, and so we got a brand we got a bag design for like a few thousand dollars. We built a little bit of inventory for a few thousand dollars. We sold it at a price that made sense to make a business around. And I think by the time we actually said we have a business in July of 22, I don't know, Stephen, we maybe had put in a few 20, 30 we, we, had, we, had, we had probably spent like 30 to 40K collectively by yeah. then. Okay. Um, so, you know, so you I mean, I, I guess like 30 to 40 K is not something that anyone, like everyone can just go and materialize, but it's something that a lot of people can materialize um, with the right, like will and passion. People tend to focus too much on small amounts of money and not enough on large amounts of money. Like if you, if you don't spend this $5,000 or whatever, like, is your life going to change that much? Probably not. Like maybe you'll what go on a vacation. I I don't know what would you do. Right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, no, it's a good question. But but if you do spend it and it pays off, then then what you know. And the other thing too is that like people um people seem to be very like short sighted in how they plan for these things as well. Um, yeah. So actually, I forget what I was going to say. Uh, Seth, you can continue if you have anything to add. I'll come back to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's just like a zooming out thing, right? Where if you plan over the course of a decade and you see if I make five reasonable bets and I've talked to people who are home friends with who will give me real feedback and they see these bets are reasonable and I'm not being crazy. Mm -hmm. Chance of one of those five hitting, like this is not my first project. This is not Steven's first project. Right? Sure. We've before, or we've succeeded in ways that we weren't excited about before. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've burned four figures, sometimes five figures on ideas that I thought were good and weren't, um, apparently the, the market told me they were not good ideas. Right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so if I had a, a philosophy of, I'm not going to risk five or 10 grand on a thing that I think is a real shot at changing my life, I would never have done those, which would have saved me money, but also would have done this and I would, you know, muscle wouldn't exist. And so, um, I think as long as you're making reasonable bets and those are credibility checked with people who are smart, have, will give you real feedback and ideally have done something relatable before. If those kinds of people are telling you this makes sense, here's a structured way for you to go like spend $10,000 in three months of your life or six months of your life to go test it, go test it, right? And like find out if, if you're right or not. And you do that three to five times in a decade and your chance of hitting something legitimate is pretty high. 
not guaranteed, right? But like pretty high. And I think having a pretty high chance at owning a real business that you have fun with and you know makes it does a lot better financially than most W two setups is an unbelievably good trade. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I know also, I, I yeah go for it. Sorry, continue. No, you can finish what you're saying. Oh no, I was just gonna say like I, I've been in. I was in that same boat, you know, two years ago, and and, and kind of did the same thing. I, I looked at essentially what exactly what you said. It's like I could stay in this for the next decade, and this is kind of my W two path. And then the other path is just kind of unclear, but it's also kind of exciting. It's like, as long as you can kind of cover the bases and make sure, especially if you're married or have kids or something, you like, you're not going to be on the streets. Um, you can like make it work. It, then it comes down to like how hard do you guys want to work? Um, which I think that was a whole paradigm shift on my, on, in my brain. I know and it happens to a lot of entrepreneurs where you, you go to realize like you're giving up time for a set amount of money. Then you switch that to being like, oh, I can exponentially put in work that can equal yeah. something totally different, right? There's no ceiling essentially. Yeah. Steven the other concerned. benefit of entrepreneurial work that goes back to what we were saying before is the more you work, the less money you have spent. So if you're like, yeah, that's uh, true too. If you're like, hey, I'm going to take my $10,000 and go put it in a business and like try to build this thing. Well, you're not going to need the 10K anyway because like you're going to be stuck home on your laptop for like 80 hours a week. Like, where, like, what are you doing? You're not spending that, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that that's a take a I have not heard of. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, Steve and I both consider ourselves really lazy, uh, but we work probably 16 hours a day most days. And so it's um, it's funny, like work really, really hard to never have to work again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been far enough out where in the macro, I'm pretty sure I'll work less hours than I would have if I stayed in any other job. Um, but yeah, to Steve's point, you have no time to spend money. So don't don't worry about it. That's a, Yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> such a good point. And for you guys, yeah. I mean, and, and this is something maybe for people who are stuck in that W2 route, I, I mean you guys have obviously taken off and it's, it's been a quick start from at least the outside and, and hearing you guys talk today. What, what is a, a macro view look like? I mean, you guys just talked about the ancient life philosophy and like that to me, there's like so many businesses that come out of that is the thought that you guys would build that for a long time and it'd be a profitable, you know, call it a family business. Or do you think there's an exit someday where someone wants to acquire something like that? I mean, if the if the markets are such that someone's willing to pay a good price for something that we built, like I'm probably not going to say no to talking with them. Um, sure. But we're not building it for any sort of exit. Like yeah. we're building we're something not... to actually accomplish a mission. Yeah, I love so that. Like philosophically opposed or bound to any particular path, we're profitable as of June. Um, oh, congratulations! That's huge. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Especially for a food brand. I mean, that's. Yeah, just know that from my finance background, that's tough to do. <laughs> Congratulations! Yeah, and that's been a lot of sticking to D to C, where margins don't get cut through uh, the middleman as much, which is great. Sure. Um, but so we we were profitable as of June, which allows us a lot of flexibility to build a business kind of the right way. I think a lot of these feedback businesses burn until they exit or die, um, and that is just not a fun business to build. So we've been pretty intentional about, um, frankly, like slowing down on certain things where we could burn more cash to accelerate but we don't really want to own a business like that um and so we you know five years from now we look at each other and we're like this sucks it's not fun anymore i don't want to be here and kellogg or whoever is going to offer us an exit that feels fair and good to us um we're open to that as like a path down the road and if in five years we're working a lifestyle we, we like taking distributions that we're happy with and you know that keep it for 30 years but we build out other modules you know that's fine too yeah Love that. No, and I love what you just you guys just said. I mean, building a you're trying to solve a a problem. You're building a mission. 
if something comes along. I mean, I think that's like the best perspective and mentality you could have. Um, you see too many brands that are, you can tell they're trying to build for an exit and they usually doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's the same type of mindset where people are trying to like build a business for the money. So like we we talked Mm -hmm. before about like trying a few different things, making small asymmetric bets and whatnot. Um, the thing, and it's, I've certainly like started like for a handful of businesses before to varying degrees of success. Um, but I think the the key insight here is that you're not trying to look for a business to start. Like the right business to start will find you if mm. you're appropriately prepared for it. So I see a lot of this type of talk on like money Twitter or wherever it is, wherever like the people who are like talking about entrepreneurship. And so I can like go quit my job and live under like live in Costa Rica on a beach somewhere. Like any of yeah. that talk or like move to Dubai or whatever. Like if you're looking for the business to start, um, it's probably not going to be the right, the right path. And also, I mean, this is an opinion. I mean, if you want to like do a case study of like successful businesses that everyone like loves talking about, none of them were seeking out businesses to go do like the, the idea and the opportunity just like fell in their lap and they were prepared to take advantage of it. And they did which is mm-hmm. a very rare set of circumstances, but they weren't like seeking out a way to go make money, um, which I think is, is something that people need to, like people think too small, honestly. That's like the symptom of this. Um, if, you're, if your head is thinking large enough, like the right opportunity will come to you and it may sound crazy, but you'll actually go do it. But if you're only focused mm-hmm. on like small things, then you may not, you may miss that thing because you're looking at things that are too small. On the note of people thinking too small, I think an important thing to understand entrepreneurship is your job is not to go do anything in particular It's to coordinate the world around you to solve a problem. And so it's like, I think people will get, are, are like anxious to start pulling things together, hiring people out to help out with particular tasks and getting leverage to go create an organization to solve a problem at scale. And what they end up building for themselves really is like a services business. So like I, when I was a kid, I was like a tutor, right? Where I'd make 20 bucks an hour or whatever to tutor people in math. Um, and that's not a business. That's just a job, right? You're, you're now being contracted hourly to go do something. Um, a business is finding a funnel of people who need tutoring services and people who are available to a tutor and connecting them through a marketplace, right? So like actually making, like that is a business. And I think, um, people who find themselves selling time and calling that entrepreneurship, I think there's, it's not a bad thing, right? There's nothing wrong with like taking a side gig where you're, you're creating a service job for yourself and you're being paid. Um, but I think the. There's no scalability in your own hours a day, and you can work as hard as you want, but like you're not going to get more time. Whereas if you create a system where you can plug more capacity in and more demand in and more flow through, right, that coordination mm. of being an entrepreneur actually is and an, is a business. Yeah, like being Got a lawyer yeah. isn't really a business, even though they may yeah. make a lot of money or they're or like self-employed or whatever. Owning right. a law firm is yes, but so like being a lawyer is not a business. So lawyers are. That's not a business. It's your, your, your job. But the law firm creator who finds lots of demand from people who need lawyers and lots of lawyers who need contracts to go read and give comments on, um, like that guy created a business. And there's a bunch of people underneath him who might, third girl, right? And they have a bunch of people underneath them who, who may think they own businesses, that they, they, they have a business unit or something. Fundamentally, they're service workers, which is, which is fine, but it's not entrepreneurship. It's just like a different fundamental value out of like, what are you being paid by the universe to go do? That is a really interesting perspective. I've just never heard it broken down that way. Um, you know, it's funny and, and it, that hits home because that's, you know, I'm essentially building a services business. I, I told you guys that before we started. 
I never thought about it like that because we um we kind of set out to break essentially what's out there, right? Because we felt like brands kind of get run through that funnel and it, the process sucks. Um, but it's really interesting. Actually, I've never thought of it in that light. And I, you got a really good point, um, especially if you're thinking about building real wealth. I mean, that's, I think that the end, like, again, if, if money's not the focus, but there is a piece of that that you want down the road in the, with that outcome, what you just said is so true, right? Like that's how you truly build wealth, I think. Well, this is the agency that. problem. And like, we've seen this firsthand with like agencies that we paid to do X or Y. Like sure. we like the guy who's offering the services. He does a good job. We pay him to go do it. And then he's trying to grow his agency. Yep. Um, not using the word business specifically. He's trying to grow his agency. And then all of a sudden there's a bunch of people that like don't know how to speak English or like read uh, oh, yeah. like in the Slack channel. And then yep. now it's not fun working with this person anymore. And then, you know, eventually if that doesn't get taken under control, then we're going to go and find another agency with some other guy that we really like that's small and he's going to do a good job and then he's going to grow and then it's going to be another Slack channel full of people who can't read what I'm writing and then we're going to leave and it's like it's this endless life cycle. Um, yeah. But, it's, but it is a problem because the only way he can make more money is by charging more hourly or whatever per project mm -hmm. and then at some point that's going to be too much um, yeah. for us. So for yeah, sure. it's an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an issue transparently and we, we talk about it openly. I mean, that's, that's the challenge that we, we knew we were setting out we were going to deal with eventually. Um, the fun piece, hopefully maybe we're differentiated. We're taking equity bets with brands we really believe in. So that's okay. where my like probably differentiation is like we have a pillar where, you know, if we're super bullish on you, we, we probably will put some seed money in, um, you know, a few of those pay off hopefully. Um, but you're totally right. It's really, really interesting. You guys have really thought through just this overarching business concept a lot. I can tell, um, it's really cool to talk to you guys about it. Cause I think you have some really, really good philosophies. Um, as we get close to the top of the hours, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, one of the questions I love to ask, and for you two just being totally different guys, you seem like a true yin and a yang, which I love. Um, for, for everyone listening who you know wants to get into entrepreneurship or wants to start their own business, one of the things that I've always found is pretty typical with a lot of, a lot of successful ones is um, not necessarily like a thorough or a, a strict process, but they, to some degree, they're goal-oriented people. Um, whether you guys are or you're not, I would love to hear what tools you guys use, whether it's, you know, for Masa or Ancient Crunch specifically or personally, um, what tools you guys use to basically, you know, macro goals, yearly goals, all the way down to the shit you have to get done today. Are you guys pen and paper? Do you use apps? Like, what do you guys use to, to just accomplish what you need to get done? We, we have, on the Yin and Yang point, very different approaches. Uh, I have an Outlook inbox and I have a schedule. And if things get done and takes time, I block out time on my schedule and go do it. If it's in my inbox, I'll read it and respond and get it done. And everything outside of that just doesn't really work for me. So that's that's pretty much my workflow. The so the, everything's on the calendar for you. Calendar and inbox, yeah. Okay. The sort of okay. quarterly goal setting stuff happens in this thing called ClickUp, which I'm hmm. I have lukewarm feelings toward. Um, okay. It's like. It's good because it, it, it's like no shit. It combines, uh, it has like documents and stuff, you know, markdown formatting, whatever. Um, but it also has like lists, like as a fundamental aspect of it, like to-do lists basically are integrated. So like if you're typing out a little task, you can, or on a, on a page, you can tag a specific task or project, or you can tag a specific document where there's a description about the project. So in theory, it works very well. I think the interface is a little bit clunky and like we don't, we're like doing stuff too quickly to really like use it 
every single day okay. or you know sure. every week. However, quarterly goals and annual plans and stuff do get written in there, um, and that that is of course thought about. Um, yeah. But uh, that, that being yeah. said, outside of tools, I think from a mindset perspective, there's really good like Warren Buffett story that goes around Twitter every few months. Uh, write down your top twenty five things you care about. Circle the bottom twenty and never do those things because those distractions I've heard that. Really matter. Um, and it, it's it's gotten to the point where it's a little bit corny, but I actually think it's really powerful because um, at any time you have a job where you're responsible for a lot of agency and deciding what to go do, there are way too many competing priorities. And if you don't say no to almost everything, you never get the important things done. And so I think Stephen and I both keep a very clear focus on whatever the next bottleneck is and going and fixing that bottleneck and moving on to the next one and letting, frankly, lots of balls drop that just don't matter as much. And so, like, you have to be okay understanding you could do 400 hours of work every single week if you have the time in your week. You don't have the time. Figure out what you're not going to do and do things you're going to prioritize. And if, if you don't prioritize, the reimbursement prioritize for you, and it'll do a much worse job than you do. As perhaps a very pertinent example of this, um, we get a lot of people reaching out that are always saying, like, oh, there's going to be some event that you could send Masa to and sponsor and pay us money, and then X, Y, and Z desirable people will interact with your product. Um, or another version of this online is like, hey, we have an email newsletter with 100,000 subscribers and it's 50% open rate. Like, will you pay us $2,000 to like shout you out in our email newsletter? Okay, like, yeah, sure. Like the, the probably the base case of either of those is that they just don't work and they take a lot of time and money and are just like pointless and distract everyone. But like the important thing, because people will see this, even myself and, and Seth included, like you'll see this and be like, oh, this could work. This could be good. Like what if... So think about even if it did work, right? Let's say we sent out this email newsletter and it was a, sma a smashing success and I don't know, it had like a 2% conversion rate or something, you know, drove a lot of sales, then what? Okay, I spent all this time, spent this money, formed this relationship, then what? Like, how is that scalable? Short mm -hmm. answer is it's not because maybe you'll find other email newsletters who want you to sponsor them, but those won't be as good quality or at least not all of them will be. And there's, so, not, there's so, not a relationship between them, right? So if you have ads that work, you can go pump money and time into ads. If you have an email newsletter that works, there's no way of like hitting the lever for free to just put more money in and have more things cycle. And so it's, it's like linear work for linear return versus a fixed amount of work for a you know, functionally infinite return. Yeah, because like if you have an ad and it takes me like an hour to go make an ad and I spend $1,000 on the ad, okay, whatever, cool. But I could also spend an hour to make an ad and spend $100,000 on the ad. Like it's yeah. the same hour, but the result is scalable. And so I think it's very tempting to focus on these sort of cutesy things, uh, which may honestly, they're just a distraction from doing the things that are scalable. And of course, the things that are scalable are the things that are hard, which is why your brain like looks for distractions so you don't have to do those things. But those are the hard things that are worth it. And so you should ignore everything else and go do those hard, scalable things. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That wasn't a question. Also, I got to run. No, I love but, that. Um, no, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you guys deal with so much and you still relatively, to, from what I can see on the outside, have a pretty small team relative to what you're doing in business. So I think both your points are fantastic. I mean, you inevitably have to say no to a lot and focus on what's important. And then you can't waste time on dumb shit, essentially, right? Like you got to make sure mm -hmm. you're putting time and energy into things that are going to produce more sales and, and help build the business. I'm sure that's tough. I'm sure that's like a constant moving target that you're always trying to just prioritize and, and navigate through. I can only imagine. Um, for both you guys too, 
would love to hear a source of knowledge, uh, something that I've, I've really loved asking founders on the podcast. So whether it's a book, a podcast, an article, a Twitter thread, anything you've read recently that you think folks should go check out that are listening today. Uh, for CPG specifically, we both read uh, Ramping Your Brand. I don't know. the Steven, who's the author? I forgot his name. Uh, James Richardson. Yeah, so he's great and I think does a really excellent job of explaining how to build a brand at the right speed in the right way. Um, so if you're looking to build a brand, that's like the book to read, I think. Okay, love that. Um, a good book that I read recently is on luxury branding. I forget yeah. what it's called. <laughs> um, maybe I can uh, send you the name and you can stick it in the show notes. Yeah, uh, that'd be fantastic. But it was, it, was, it was a good book about, like it talked obviously about like, sorry, prestige branding is what they call it. It talked about like Starbucks and Patagonia and of course the classic luxury brands, um, but also some of the more the more modern ones um, and what they do differently that like makes them stand out and allows them to like rise above the sea of commodities that suck. Um, but yeah, I think the the branding marketing thing is something that it seems like many first time entrepreneurs don't often understand. Like most of the people who end up starting businesses are the ones that like make the product, like have the idea for the product initially. And so that's typically not the same skill set as like knowing things about marketing and branding. Um, so you end up getting the person who started the business is the product guy who doesn't know anything about selling it. Um, and this happens in tech as well, very commonly. Um, so I think it's very important for people to read books about this stuff because there's oh, no yeah. other good way to learn about it. And it's probably a very common symptom that like brand founders tend to have. I love that. I need to read that for sure. Yeah. On that note, um, I do have to run. Um, yes. Thank you so much for having both of us on the call. It's been awesome. Absolutely. It was a pleasure meeting both of you. Thank you for taking the time and uh, best of luck with Masa and let's stay in touch. Cool. Thank you very much. Appreciate awesome. it. Take care. Thanks Bye. guys. See you again.